Hi. It's only possible to make shows like Radio Free Midworld uh, because people give so generously to our Patreon. Consider going to patreon.com slash duckfeedtv and kicking us a couple of bucks a month. It makes a huge difference for us and helps us do new shows, continue doing old shows, etc. Once again, patreon.com slash duckfeedtv. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King. My name is Cole Ross, and today I'm joined by Chase Greenlee. Hello. And by Jeremy Greer. Hello, hello. And we are here to talk about the continuation of the portion of Wizard and Glass called Susan. This is part two of Susan picking up after the chapter called Shimi. I'm not going to say every proper noun that way, but it just seemed it seemed good to, to, to hit it and emphasize it. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Pretty good. Cool. Yeah. So, Jeremy, I'm doing very well. <laughs> Jeremy, you were here last week, so I already, I already, I already know know all this. But I'm going to get the uh, uh, kind of biographical information from uh, from, from from Chase here. Uh, man, I'm wasting no time today. Sorry about that. Oh, right into it. Rush. Yeah, but let's let, let's let, let's do this. Chase, uh, what, what, what's your uh, kind of first experience with, with uh, what was your first experience with Wizard and Glass? Um, we're we're experiencing it presently. Okay. Um, yeah. This is uh, I'm working my way through the book at the at the same pace of the show. Um, I was actually had a pretty good lead on it. And then um, and then Witcher three happened and I fell behind real bad. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going to be the podcast about talking about things that we sh- we are doing instead of the things that we should have been doing. <laughs> is, is <that> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. We're, we're going we're gonna to end this episode probably around like 930. And then from 930 until midnight, I'm going to play The Witcher three. Excellent. <laughs> Not because The Witcher Three ended, uh, you know, it just came out, but because of pod homework. Yeah. So, yeah. So, sorry about that. I, I forgot that you're that, that you're one of the uh, one of the guests who is reading along for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it's aside from the the you know at this point standard uncomfortable sexual stuff in this uh in <laughs> Stephen King works this is a real good like book in general i'm really enjoying all of this except for that uncomfortable sex stuff <laughs> uh, i mean so what do you consider to be the uncomfortable stuff like the the stuff with ria the stuff with ria and also the fact that's like oh this is bordering on being explicitly explained when they are children yeah it's, yep. uh, it's the optics aren't great <laughs> no the, the 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 short summary of it is not uh is is not great however it is a very well-told love story it absolutely is yeah. and i mean speaking of Rhea, i mean at least it's consensual this time so they're <laughs> mostly mostly consensual this time so there's mostly, that i guess yeah yep there's one. There's one very specific scene that's going to skeeve everybody out. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. The age thing is such a such a difficult thing to to mm-hmm. wrap my mind around because like I know what I was doing when I was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, and like mm-hmm. it's just strange to see this written in a book when I'm now almost thirty seven, and mm-hmm. in twenty seventeen. <laughs> Like just, it just feels so much different to me now than it did when I first read this book. It's it's really it's it's an odd odd experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have conflicted feelings about it, uh, but I think in my head I just age them up to 17 and say, well, there we go. Yeah, sure. Enough. Yeah, that's, the, 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 that's, on the, that's on the border of, uh, of acceptable, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, cool. I'm happy you're enjoying this because I am also very much enjoying it on my kind of second go through here. Not second. This is my third or fourth time through the book. Shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh it is it is quite enjoyable and I would like to I would like to dive into this because some cool stuff happens. The conspiracy starts being unraveled. Yeah, so let's let's jump right into it with um uh, uh kind of a summary. Last time, you know, our cotet, not you know, the one we started started with, but uh, the one Roland started with Roland Elaine and uh, and Cuthbert uh, ride to the town of Hambry and the barony of Magus uh, in order to count things. They're put on this make work assignment to get away from Gilead because the heat is on there. Um, while they're in the town, Roland meets a young girl named Susan, uh, and they immediately fall in love in a way that could only be Ka. Uh, but in the meantime, they run afoul of these three kind of rogue mercenary lawmen, the big coffin hunters, who, um, along with the rest of the town, are up to more than they seem. So, yeah, um, this section opens up with a chapter called On the Drop. Uh, we have just moved from a description of the showdown between the big coffin hunters and Roland's cotet, um, uh, over to a scene of Susan riding furiously across the drop. Um, and this has been three weeks since this dance where, uh, uh, Roland said a pretty mean thing to her and her Susan is upset and distraught because of this just terrible confrontation that she had with her aunt. Uh, over uh, a shirt of all dumb things. Sounds like mm-hmm. a, something a, a 16, 17 year old girl would get into a fight with about her, <laughs> into a fight with her aunt about. Yeah, <laughs> right. why, are, why are you wearing all that goth clothing, Susan? <laughs> Wear a white shirt. <laughs> I know you're not going outside with all that makeup on. <laughs> yeah. It's not about the clothes, it's what the clothes represent. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. This feels pretty authentic to me because, you know, the, the 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 fights that people have in general and especially the fights that, you know, younger people have with older family members, it's it's never about the actual thing that it seems that they're about. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly what you said, Jace. You know, yeah. it, it is what the clothes represent because these are, you know, the mayor who has a claim on Susan's virginity saying, hey, dress up all frilly for me. And Cordelia, who really wants this deal to go through, is like, nah, I should probably wear that to make him feel good so I can get my money. Mm-hmm. Cordelia's just the yeah, worst. <sighs> Cordelia's idea is that if somebody sees you wearing it, they might say they might tell the mayor and that might make him happy. And I'm like, he's already paid for the goods. Like at this <laughs> yeah. point, what is he going to do? <laughs> <laughs> he can't really back out of it. <sighs> Cole, before we get too far, I forgot to talk about something in the last episode regarding Roland and um, when he says that that terrible thing about Susan or terrible thing to Susan. It's, it was, it's where they're dancing and he's, he, you know, she asks him to be discreet and he says, yes, I can be discreet as for propriety. I'm surprised you know the meaning of the word. So essentially calling her, mm-hmm. you know, any number of terrible things about her sexuality and her terrible situation. Continue, Jeremy. But right before that, as he as it dawns on him what she's doing as they're sitting at the dinner table, uh, 
uh, he has to resist the urge of like reaching down for his gun so that he can shoot her. Mm-hmm. And it's just that wild swing of teenage emotion that I think really sells this love story more than a, a lot of the, the the weird the weird stuff that gets we get into later. But the like the way that Roland just swings wildly from "I'm about to kill you, girl" to uh, I, "I want to love you forever" is so it's such a teenage thing, yeah. <laughs> and I just I love it so much. And it's it's these huge sprawling expanses that like you know he's he's riding around the drop and, and like riding down the drop and crying and it's just very it's very teenage wasteland almost you know what i'm saying like it's just very <laughs> way over the top and emotional yeah. yeah i the the number one thought that kept going through my head whenever these scenes would crop up is just like these children <laughs> these kids <laughs> why 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 can't you just make up your goddamn mind <laughs> Uh, like specifically with Roland, it's you know we we mostly know him as an adult, but even as a as a, as a kid, you know, from the Gunslinger chapters in his past, and then now this, we get the sense that he is already this budding kind of consummate professional. You know, he is the natural leader of this group. You know, he has the plan together. They probably trust him too much, given what's you know going to happen and what's going on. But like, contrast his you know cold bloodedness. You know, at one point Shimi like gets a look at Roland's eyes and says, "Oh, he is more of a killer than any of the big coffin hunters." Contrast that with these wild swings of emotion and his kind of capacity for this you know instant romantic love. Um, you're right. It is just this wild disparity. They're all over the road with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for catching that detail because I dropped it. Yeah. Um, but this begins or continues uh, a little bit of, you know, kind of cloak and dagger that Roland is, you know, setting up, you know, setting about to in order to make his apology, but also also get uh, Susan in on his little side of the conspiracy, his little side of the secret. Uh, and he does this by having Shimi bring some flowers to Susan with a note. <laughs> Roland, what, what are you, what, what Reddit thread have you been reading to know that this is the wrong <laughs> thing, right thing to do? <laughs> My dude, what, what? Uh, so he's 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 probably on red pill verging into men going their own way possibly Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. like off in the mist but rapidly approaching his incel Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah (laughs) i mean it's not just about like oh i want you back baby um it's you know he he wants to arrange a meeting you know it's uh you know, a, a a little bit more. He, you know, he wants to figure out where she stands in this strange town with its kind of strange alliances. Let's uh, let's give it up for Shimi here because Shimi plays like <laughs> Shimi plays people's perception of him in order to get out of trouble. It's great. Yeah, no, Shimi is surprisingly sharp at multiple points throughout uh, the rest of this chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, so he is in a lot of ways kind of a standard Stephen King, you know, developmentally delayed person, um, you know, a standard character that he kind of goes to. But like Shimi is able to kind of use that perception that people have about him as being kind of slow in order to basically get away with lying or get away with this stuff when he has to specifically for his friends, because Shimi loves all three of them. He calls, he calls uh, Cuthbert his first best, best friend. He calls Elena's second best friend. He calls Roland his third, except he uses their names, which I cannot remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
very cool. So when they meet, Roland apologizes for his remark, and this begins, again, the indecisiveness, the back and forth. Um, and I love this line, and I think it goes back uh, a little bit to what I was saying before about him, again, going back and forth between being spitting and being a professional. Uh, it's a great quote here. Roland accepted love as a fact, not as a flower. And it really kind of throws Susan off guard for how literal minded he is about this stuff. Like he is not tripped up in the same kind of aspect of this that that she is. Or that she's seen other boys pretend to be, right? Like she, he's he's just like, yeah, this is a thing. This is the way I feel. Like I, this isn't like it doesn't really like it. Obviously, it involves you, but like not, I, I can't change this. Like it's mm-hmm. just a fact of life. Like this is not something that I'm going to write poetry about because I don't really <laughs> understand why people do that. Like I'm just, I just, I know that I love you, and I love you more than anything in this world has ever been loved, ever, ever, ever. And that's it. That's a straight fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, l- I love how brutal Roland is in, in his, his like kind of romantic qualities in, in a lot of cases. He just kind of is like, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I'm, I'm going to do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Literally. I will literally do and like even later in this, in this chapter, like it kind of scares her. She's like, Oh shit, he might be serious. <laughs> I might, I might, I might need to be worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chase, did you have anything uh, to say about that before I move on to the next one here? I don't want to. Um, bl- no, you're, you're, that. You're fine. Honestly, in this part, uh, this little exchange here, I got caught up on one little detail that um, King put in there of just the scene. Um, apparently, Roland rides with a lance just strapped to his horse. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, I guess, mm-hmm. that's never been made mention of before on like in any reference to horses, not in any of the you know preceding three books or in this book up to now. But apparently... Like, folk just ride around with lances like that's a thing. Like, and I get like, you know, they are these are knights. These are folks of, you know, who would mm-hmm. apparently know how to use that. Yeah. Uh, but they never really make the line of where the the fantasy, like the European fantasy elements and the American Western elements are meeting. And apparently that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. So the, the lance was mentioned earlier when they were riding into town. Uh, oh, okay. R- Rhea saw it through the glass. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, it it is a particular detail, and it does kind of paint a picture of him as being, you know, the white knight mm-hmm. in shining armor a little bit. I just always read it as uh, he is really into amateur impromptu jousting. I mean, what else could it be? <laughs> right. right. Hey, you know, <laughs> All right. Thinking about it, I think I when um, she saw the lance uh, through um, in her vi- in the vision, I assumed it was a metaphorical kind of thing. I didn't think, oh no, they got just just fucking lances with them yeah all right yeah no it was uh so it was it was roland riding in with his lance and then uh, uh cuthbert has lookout right they're kind of their uh it's it's their flair again peacocking right <laughs> there's a moment lookout, later so in, in a section where um roland um is remembering like you know that he's of the eld or whatever and traced back all the way back to arthur who rode into battle with Excalibur above his head and his gunslingers is by his side. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> this mental picture is very confusing to me. <laughs> Were yeah. they gunslingers back then too? <laughs> yeah. And wait, didn't they melt that down to make the, uh, Oh, now my head hurts. Oh, Oh no. And actually, since we're, since we're talking about that, um, that mental image, there was also, I think at the, um, uh, at the start of the Shimi chapter, there was a description of a tapestry with um, 
Arthur Eld coming out of a pyramid with Excalibur held aloft above his head. Yep. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It is. Arthur L. might as well be the main character in an Assassin's Creed right now. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that is very it. good. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is a good observation. <laughs> um, regardless, he has this lance and he is deadly serious about wondering just how down she is with the affiliation. Remember, the affiliation is kind of the... Uh, the established order, you know, the 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 knighthood, you know, the the kingship that you know rules out of Gilead, um, and it stands in opposition to John Farson, the good man, this uh, this bandit turned revolutionary, who is uh, definitely kind of some bad news, at least for the people of the affiliation. And Roland has, you know, good reason to ask her this because, like, people in the town are not playing it straight for them. First off. They seem way too enthusiastic about the affiliation. I, I like this a lot because <laughs> it's it shows the difference between Susan, who is like, yeah, like you know, whatever, <laughs> like they're around, and like we, you know, we'll we'll give them some tithe horses every once in a while or, or whatever. But like, she's not particularly excited about it. Like it, it kind of feels like being in um, what what it was like when Barack Obama was president, and you just didn't really have to care because things were okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, versus now, where right? it's you're like it's 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 resistance or die. So, <laughs> right. Um, right. And that's what and all of everyone else in town is so overly excited and like, oh yeah, yeah, like you know, jumping up to do salutes or whatever you do with the with the affiliation that it, it triggers his suspicion. It's a really nice like you've gone too far the other direction kind of thing, and I, I really like it. <laughs> you protest too much. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my, my favorite detail here that, so you know, they, they've got these steins that are, you know, made of these ceremonial glasses, uh, for toasting Arthur Eldon and they keep offering it to the kids, but it's all whiskey. <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, yes, for the affiliation, let's toast it. Hey, here you go. Cause remember, they're not supposed to have that. They're here because they were out helling. <laughs> you want some whiskey kids? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I like the idea that they would just do this with 16 year olds no matter what yeah. <laughs> like, do, they, do they offer susan whiskey when she drops, drops by <laughs> that's got to be safer than the water and you see you see probably, all what, what, what the horses is. look like come on all these extra legs rolling around um <laughs> apparently they're better off than the, we initially thought they were oh true true the horses are threaded um and mm -hmm. like i guess hambury has the uh the best horses the best horses themselves. Whenever I think of horses in this world, they always think of the ones that have their guts on the outside. Yeah, the the, the bad ones from Gunslinger. Yeah, <laughs> you know the bad horses. <laughs> um, the more serious thing, and the one that is you know less just like a you know uh, let's say e ephemeral, I suppose, um, is that uh, the town officials they're underreporting the number of horses by like a lot. You know, he, he Roland like points out at the drop and says, "Hey, um, t tell me, like, what do you think of the number of horses that you see out there, based on what you know?" And Susan finally sees it, you know, through through his eyes that like, yeah, wait, there are way too many horses here. They're like lowballing the affiliation. Which, like, even she's surprised that she hadn't noticed, right? Like, she's like, wait a minute. There are way too many horses out here. How have I not noticed this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, you know, something something isn't matching up. Somebody is lying about this 
for you know for, for for one particular reason or another um and i think this is also where it's dropped in that one of them one of the three saw oxen which are mm-hmm. creatures so exotic that they've only ever been spotted in storybooks yeah i believe it was uh, elaine who was like i couldn't believe it I've, i have i've never seen these things and in, in i can't believe it. we're out in some you know, middle of nowhere town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's freaking oxen out here. That's crazy. And here are these unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> these big fluffy unicorns. Yeah. Um, and kind of to throw a little bit more onto this, uh, Roland has suspicions about Pat Delgado, Susan's father, uh, his death, right? Because it seems really weird that this otherwise good person who uh is the horse master of this town would die by being trampled by his own horse like it just doesn't it doesn't seem to line up well especially because now there's a lot more horses out there so you know those two facts combined like one could be ignored but if you combine the two it it really points at some some foul play to Cy Delgado's death yeah yeah somebody's Mm -hmm. Somebody's teaching these horses how to fuck. <laughs> uh, this one goes all the way to the top, guys. <laughs> so, Man, this has just been a weird day for me on Duck Feed Podcast talking about fucking an- domesticated animals. Because me and Gary had a whole cow fucking bit in Days of Future Cast. So oh, I just, that's a bit of a- I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know exactly when this this is going to coincide with each other, but I'm really excited for them to come out during the same week. <laughs> it, it, that that might actually happen, Jeremy. So, <laughs> so all of these are big, open-hanging questions. You know, how did Pat really die? Why are there so many horses? And who taught them how to fuck? And that's kind of what they what what they leave on. Oh, also because they are gluttons for trouble, they kiss ferociously they try to devour each other's faces yeah they kiss so hard that um they draw blood from one another yeah. which is like some serious teenage bad kissing but can't help <laughs> yourself at bad kissing yeah you shouldn't need stitches after a smooch <laughs> you shouldn't know but sometimes you gotta you yeah, know yeah. i mean this is not this is not straight up vor yet like that's probably gonna be like chapter 24 but we're, we're good there yep kissing shouldn't have a winner <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So back at their shitty little, uh, like, barn that they stay in, the Bar K, uh, Mm -hmm. they get their first note uh, from home. I forget if we mentioned it last week, but they've got these homing pigeons that I feel real bad for because you know something bad's going to happen to these pigeons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a detail here. Farson is moving to the east, but it's not no when, where, or why. Just keep your ear to the ground. Um, and Cuthbert's doing that, but not so much for Farson. He notices a gold hair on Roland's shirt, which, uh, yeah. Um, Cuthbert's gonna, things are gonna rise to a head, like in the next episode, uh, with this, but it's, uh, starting to, uh, starting to show up here. Um, I like this moment that the, the three of them have together because Roland is, is basically said like, yeah, we're just gonna, we're just gonna continue what we're doing. We're just. It's going to keep counting, uh, you know, we're going to be counting fish or whatever that they're doing. We're not going to worry about the horses. And he kind of turns around to look in the sunset and uh, Cuthbert, like, just very quickly pulls his hair from him and then, like, shows it to Elaine. And they're both, like, sharing looks with each other. And it's just like, yep, 
this is exactly how friends work. They're like, oh, oh, I, I know what he, I, I know what's happening. Mm. <laughs> Roland's got a girl. Roland's <laughs> oh. doing a dumb. Is this going to be problems? Yeah, it's going to be problems. It's going to be real big problems. So yeah, they have to avoid going after these horses because they have. I mean, I want to see one of these castles boards that they're talking about because like it gets more elaborate every time I pay attention to the way that it's described. So this entire thing is, is kind of described as a game of castles, which seems like a game of chess, except they talk about like coming out around a hillock. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, does this have like topology to it? Is there, is it like a Warhammer board? I was going to say, they're breaking out the D and D terrain sets. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm down. I I kind of looked at this as like a, uh, um, uh, what is the battleship like with the like a divider mm-hmm. in the middle or something uh-huh. that would eventually uh, maybe maybe you'll be able to like flatten it at some point or something but i i, I really i have no idea like it, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very curious where stephen king comes up with these weird board games that he, he likes to talk about yes watch me and all of that um mm-hmm. yeah i guess watch me is just poker though well they call out poker and watch me as different things back in i think in shimi oh yeah i suppose you're right because I was thinking the same thing. It's like, oh, this is just fantasy poker. Nope, yeah. apparently not. Oh, to the concordance. It might actually be in there. I should probably go look that up and report back mm-hmm. next time. Excellent. Um, yeah. But they, um, <laughs> in order to avoid exposing their position, you know, to show what their real intention is and, you know, to avoid saying like, hey, we know what's up. They can't go and count the horses. They cannot leave the fishing side of Hambry uh, because, well, you know. They want to act in secrecy as much as possible, although that's going to be pretty hard because this next chapter, Beneath the Peddler's Moon, where we get some time with our good friend, old redheaded Roy DePape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's a real bastard. The guy that hecked up so bad they sent him out of town. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh, the, he hecked up his boots so bad he had to be, he had to go, he had to go leave. Get out of here, man. Take your glasses. Um, we already knew Roy was a jerk, you know, because he was about ready to kill Shimi for messing up his shoes. But uh, this little scene here shows that he is indeed completely uh, uh, immoral. So he's been set out um, to kind of follow the back trail of the kids to figure out if anybody has seen them, knows where they're coming from, knows who they really are. And he gets to the town of Ritzy, which is described as a as a one-stop shop where you go you buy your beer and then the undertaker's right next door. So you can be buried after you die from a bar fight. Like it's a real <laughs> piece of shit town between, you know, uh, unless you're, and a, unless you're a minor, in which case you can't, you can't buy your beer at the normal store. You have to buy it at the company store. True. Yeah. <laughs> I just really like, I really like that little detail that they put in <laughs> that, that, that company script exists even in Midworld. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there's a protracted scene with Roy and this old man uh, who has seen the kids, you know, who, you know, actually Roy even recognizes from before uh, knows that the guy like that's telling, telling the truth because, you know, he also recognizes, recognizes Roy. Um, and he says like, Oh, I'll give you some metal for your, uh, for, for, for your answer. And we get this long explanation from the guy saying like, yeah, you know, I could see, Tell one of them was descended from, you know, uh, Arthur Ald himself, you know, son of Stephen DeShane, uh, was going by the name Willie, Willie Borchard or, you know, okay, that guy got you, I got you. 
And then the metal that Roy decides to give him is lead because A, Roy is a jerk. B, Roy thought he was doing him a favor because he was already starting to eat the devil grass. Uh, and C, Roy's a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Any, uh, any, any, any thoughts about this particular scene? Because like at this point is no longer just a suspicion. They know that they're gunslingers. Um, there was one bit of description actually in here. I'm trying to find it off the real quick, but I can't. Um, <laughs> there was a bit of description where um, they uh, described the entire town as smelling like the um, the outhouses from the mines. <laughs> just the wind, like you, the entire city is just downwind of that. And it, that's a very, very evocative in all the wrong senses <laughs> description for it. It's like, ah, yeah, that is a place you don't want to be for any extended period of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been to towns like that, right? Where just oh, yeah. whatever is nearby, you can smell. I, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. When I was a little kid, we went to Wapakoneta, Ohio, which is mm-hmm. the birthplace of um, Neil Armstrong. You know, first man mm-hmm. on the moon, you know, to go. We went there to see the museum and all of that. And all of that stuff was cool. The problem was Wapakoneta, at least at the time, was a big pig farm in town. Uh, and if you've if you've ever been near a pig shit lagoon, mm-hmm. you know that you can't not smell anything like it doesn't matter which way the wind is blowing. Uh, you're going to have that right in your face the whole time. It ruined that vacation. <laughs> oh, I, I know that all too well, actually. I live in Bowling Green, Ohio, and there is one apartment complex um, over on uh, the south side of town that is unfortunately close to a pig slaughterhouse. And uh, on the wrong day, wrong time of day, uh, in the middle of summer, that is a smell that is inescapable if you're in that part of the, uh, if you're over that way. Yeah, that's awful. It's real bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, chicken, chicken farms were not down in the fall. Yeah. Mm. Kid. Like they, they were all over North Louisiana. And then, uh, the town that I went to high school in had a, uh, a paper plant. And, uh, oh, so it smelled oh. like farms. Be- beautiful sunrises and sunsets. Like, I mean, pollution gives, gives <laughs> you some great views. But, Magnifies uh, the sun. Boy, that place stinks. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, Ritzy is anything but, as, uh, as, as, as Roy observes and Stephen King writes. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the, the plot thickens and the pieces move even closer here a little bit later time, like time moves by these big kind of leaps here, you know, weeks mm-hmm. and weeks at a time. Um, Roland Delane and Cuthbert go out and see the thinny. And I want to hear what you guys think of this kind of first encounter with the real horror of the thinny, not just, you know, distant and not just something distant and kind of universe threatening, but something that is getting in their heads the the worst thing about the thinny is that it's apparently alive yeah um that it's it's, it's not just a a natural occurrence you know it's not it's not from nature it's some malevolent presence um and we know that like you know there people are already starting to use the term before the world has moved on but uh like we know as the reader that everything in this world is going to shit. Like mm-hmm. time is, is coming loose from its moors. And so this is probably a symptom of that. Um, and it's terrifying. Like the fact that it's kind of cozied up at the end of this canyon, the fact that you see it like reach out with a tendril and snack a bird. I said snack, I meant snag, but you know, snag, snag, I guess would work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, snack, yeah snack. both works. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, when it 
actively starts talking to the boys, um, you know, telling Roland, like, you don't have to worry about girls here. You don't have to worry about traitorous mothers here. Like, you can just yeah. step in. Like, that's uh, that's some that's some <laughs> weird and, and, and disquieting shit right there. This is, so I, I just want to pull this up because I love the way that it's uh, the, the, that it's phrased. Jump in and let all of these cares cease. There is no love of girls to worry you here and no mourning of lost mothers to weigh your child's heart. Only the hum of the growing cavity at the center of the universe. Only the punky sweetness of rotting flesh. Come, gunslinger, be a part of the thinny. And it's not like talking to him in this, you know, guttural, deep, rhyme, chaos voice. It's speaking to him in his dad's voice and his mom's voice and his own. (laughs) Basically saying like, hey, give up all hope and just walk into this oblivion that is on the other side of this thing that I am. Um, the thing that really snagged me about this as kind of the first time reader is that I mean, just on maybe I know more a little bit more about it just from, you know, listening to the show. And we've jumped around a little bit, um, especially covering the mist. Uh, we know that the thinny is literally where the essentially the floors of the tower are starting to, you know, thin and wear together. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is giving that force a sentience and. Like I'm reading through, I don't know if that force is the actual thinning of the tower or if it's the tower itself. Mm-hmm. Like we have been going through and, you know, he talks about going to the tower. We got to get to the tower. And <laughs> I'm still like, I still don't know why we're trying to get to this fucking tower. But <laughs> we're on the way to it. And now I'm wondering, it's like, is d- does does tower think <laughs> what what can tower <laughs> <laughs> or is 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 this what waits beyond the tower's influence? Right, right, yeah. Is or is this what we're trying to to stop? Like I, <laughs> I, 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 this adds a new layer of intrigue that I hadn't really considered before. You know, obviously before I read this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh. So that cosmic horror aside, and also the kind of kick and rad uh, aspect of this huge tendril of water reaching up and grabbing a bird uh, just to just to eat it and <laughs> make the whole thing glow like yum bird snack. Um, they're here in order to get a sense for what this is. And I love the line like, okay, well, what are we doing here? Um, and Roland says, we're here to count. So there we go. One thinny, way too many horses, <laughs> but one thinny. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of good witticism there um, from a character who is not normally uh, noted for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the conclusion that they come to, um, with some of this stuff right here, or at least their hypothesis is that the town itself is working to do something for Farson and that there has to be something more than horses because though these horses are very good, good, good horses, good, have some oats, <laughs> um, Good fucking horses. Am I right, Cole? Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he could get those anywhere. There has to be something, uh, something more. And we're going to find out what that is here in the chapter called Sitgo. You remember when Roland's riding in, he finds this kind of ghostly oil field where some of the derricks are still working, where some of the pumps are still going. That's going to come later, though. Uh, we have Susan, who has a new horse. It's Felicia. And though Cordelia says it's a gift, it's actually a part of the contract and the horse belonged to them anyway. And, you know, Susan can't quite get that through her aunt's thick skull. Yeah. 
And when she goes to get new new uh, shoes for this horse, she notices, hey, the, the blacksmith kind of seems flush with cash. Like, he's kind of willing to extend me some credit. Like, things are a little bit more prosperous here. And she thinks, oh, well, that's probably, he's probably just being nice to me because of, uh, you know, because of my relationship with the mayor. Um, but we're going to find out that's not quite what it is. Um, when she goes to meet Roland, there's a little bit of back and forth um, with this. Like, Shimi brings another note saying, like, hey, go meet me at Sitgo. She's like, oh, I'm not going to do this. She sends another note to Roland about it. Like, I could do without the hesitation. <laughs> Honestly, it makes it a little bit hard to draw a straight line from one thing to another. There um, is like just five pages of this back and forth. It's like, will will I go? I don't want to go. I want to go. I'm going to, you know, cloak and dagger and needful cloak and dagger. But right. yeah, she, she shaved a little off. Yeah, she she does everything except like pick up a flower and play uh, pluckety do, which is their name for the for, you know, like, oh, do I, you know, does he love me? Does he not? Does he love me? Mm. Does he not? You know, the game of pluckety do. Um, <laughs> well, is, is that a Ohio thing? I've never heard that in my no, life. No, <laughs> no. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna call you on it till you said so. You repeated it, and I was like, I can't. I can't no, I, can't I just just let him get away with it. <laughs> I just wanted to make up a name for that thing. I don't even know what pluckety that is. do. <laughs> I, I don't even know what you call that. Like, the, like, is that? Okay, wait a minute. Am I entirely crazy? Like, that's a thing. People... No, that's a thing. No, no, no. Okay. That, that is a thing. I always called it love me not, right? Like, that's it, always yeah. the thing. Like, does he love me? Does he love me not? Yeah. Okay. But pluckety do is also a great, like, good, good, like, southern swing <laughs> twist on it. Oh, she's playing her game of pl- pluckety do over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just I just made that up because everything in Midworld has to have a goofy name to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, eventually, you know, she passes word along through Cuthbert um kind of <laughs> getting a little bit of casual misogyny from Cuthbert saying like oh she's clever you know I didn't think she would be because pretty girls don't have to be so good on you Cuthbert you got some, we, we all have some growing to do right if you if you can't grow what's the point of getting up in the morning right yeah, right <laughs> try try again so um Cuthbert and Elaine, they set up a watch as Roland and Susan go venturing into Sitgo. Like Susan, even though she grew up near she grew up near this thing, she would never go in alone because she's terrified of it. And Roland, you know, wants somebody who's familiar with the place uh, to, you know, to take him in. Um, and there's this kind of distinct feeling that they're being watched. In fact, at one point, Susan says basically, hey, fuck off, you old witch, because they are being watched. Um, we haven't checked in with Rhea in a bit after she got all gropey back there. Uh, but she's in a bad way. Um, Rhea and her orb, they've been getting acquainted. As one does get with an orb. <laughs> right. You just gotta, gotta, gotta look into that thing. <laughs> see what it shows you. Gotta get all up in it. Yeah. Um, gotta get up in them orbs. Uh, I, I like the fact that now, uh, that like King goes out of his way to specifically say like no one would ever mistake her as a young girl now because uh, even though she had a, a, a an enormous amount of vitality and this let her live a long time, like this orb is sucking it out of her vampire style, like slowly but surely. Yeah. Um, and that's mm-hmm. like making this orb like a a like a, a a thing like a thing with not even not necessarily like conscience, but with a thing with its own um, agency is is very spooky and scary to me. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, this thing that kind of like calls out um, and becomes like a literal addiction for her. Um, it 
makes it something more than just the standard like oh scryer's orb or something like that your crystal ball or what have you um this is no good and so as we saw at the beginning of the book when jonas brought it to her and she decided to crack that bad boy open and avoid the warranty um it'll show you you know <laughs> it shows the viewer things you know kind of this far sight um but it only shows people in um kind of like compromising situations um so there's a little bit of a rundown later on but it's worth talking about here because i love this orb so much um, <laughs> but it's like people you know people fighting people who are uh having sex just uh people at their very worst is what it sees and this plays right into you know Rhea as this totally cynical you know just misanthrope um uh, of a person plays right into it um, and it draws the vitality out of her as she, as she, as she looks into it. Um, and so she becomes this, uh, this kind of persistent observer because she takes an interest because she sees the budding romance between Susan and Will, um, quote unquote, Will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we're going to come back to this, uh, Roland, you know, in kind of saying, explaining why they're here says like yeah uh we have some suspicions and you should also know that I, my actual name isn't isn't will uh, my name is roland um and i have now trusted you with my life um <laughs> and they they venture in and roland kind of demonstrates his skills he identifies who was walking here based on the based on the tracks i think he says oh that's roy de pate because he's got uh you know he kind of he walks with his right foot turned in a little bit seems like what are you <laughs> a question he's gonna be hearing from women for a long long time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i love his explanation because it's just it's just trail craft like it's real easy <laughs> you just learn it it's it, it, it's just that no yeah. no <laughs> you just you just have it beaten into you by a man named court <laughs> like so it's not all laid bare yet um i i can't even remember this is where he says you know this is this is my name he definitely tells her his his name before they before they kind of consummate their relationship Mm -hmm. um i think it's right after it's coming up here it's like right after he uh they find the oil yeah um Mm -hmm. and that's that's important because Mm -hmm. the big coffin hunters um have actually gathered what farson wants it's not horses. It's like you said, Chase. It's big old tankers full of oil with some fresh wheels, which uh, uh, confirms to Susan that, yes, the blacksmith and probably the whole town is in on this. Uh, and also it's been hidden by pine boughs. So uh, they <laughs> you don't hide something that is okay. Uh, <laughs> what do you guys think of this revelation? I, I sort of expected this on the first reading the book, like, the thing in the first part of this book to not be a, a major thing later on and you know the fact that there's an oil like refi- not refinery but like an oil there's all these oil wells like right outside of the sleepy town that Roland has to be in like obviously some shit is going to go down Chekhov's crude Chekhov's crude the surprising thing to me is that uh, um, like how bad of a job they did really hiding this and I think even <laughs> Roland says is it they're like, yeah, they obviously kind of disrespect us a little bit because they like this is not a great job. Like they barely hid their tracks. Like they, <laughs> you know, obviously they they pulled 
all these branches off the tree, but you can still see that the branches are missing, meaning that you should go look where there's a bunch of branches and see what that what's happening with that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it, this wasn't necessarily much of a revelation for me at this point. I guess is is my point. Yeah. Uh, Chase. Um, pretty much the same thing. Um, I. I didn't know why they would need the oil for it, just because I we haven't really gotten a whole lot about Farson as of yet. I mean, we we know he is the good man, and we know he is trying to lead this uh, this uprising, but we haven't heard anything about um, you know military prowess or having these uh, old um, these old world military machines that might be able. To, I think um, uh, Roland says they could lay out ten thousand in a single battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had like this is the first time hearing a lot of this. So it wasn't so so much a mystery to be solved as something to just kind of uncover as we were going through. Yeah. Um the enormity of this uh, I remember on my first read through kind of hit home because like okay there's oil here what else from our world or what else from a more technological society would be here? It turns mm-hmm. out that it's not just like cars or, you know, cannons or whatever. Like they're talking about sending tanks and machine guns in after people who are on horseback with revolvers mm-hmm. like this is setting up for like a last samurai kind of thing on a very large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of a weird resonance with the stand as well. Um, because, you know, not to summarize that entire book, but the idea was you know, that like, Oh, the things that led to the super, the super flu or the nuclear weapons or anything that factored in that book, you know, it was the death trip, right? It was all, the technology and order that led to basically more efficient ways to kill everybody. Uh, there's an echo of that here. You know, Susan says like, Oh, even Farson has to know the ways of the old people are the ways of death. You know, everyone knows that. And Roland just basically fires back. Yeah. Death is what John Farson's all about. So, you know, you have the broken tools just laying around waiting for everybody to, uh, to come pick them back up. Yeah, so another piece um, kind of slots into place, and they have to pretend that they don't know it. Yeah, that's. I think that's the the most aggravating part of, and it's not necessarily in the section that we're covering today with the waiting. Like, it's definitely going to come to a head in the in the next episode of the podcast. But mm-hmm. like this 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 thing with them having to pretend to not know things um, has to just be infuriating. Like, it's just got to be the most aggravating thing in the world <laughs> for them. Especially the oxen, because this is this is where the oxen actually came into play, um, because they were uh, that's what they saw hauling the um, the tankers like um, Roland was able to, you know, with his insane tracking ability. See, it's like, oh, yeah, no, these these oxen were here. It was a while ago because this is um, it this uh, the dirt is as solid as concrete, but I could still Mm -hmm. see where their oxen pulled. Um, I don't know if the oxen come back into play later on for something uh, a little bit bigger, but um, this is the first time that that piece of the puzzle has started to slot into place. Yeah, they were using them as uh, as draft animals to pull the tankers mm-hmm. because the horses couldn't quite cut it. Yeah. Um, so we'll, <laughs> that lands with a reverberating uh, kind of uh, bang across the horizon. Sorry, I used the word bang. I didn't mean to do that because things are about to get a little weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we have more indecision, you know, as they part, you know, as uh, as as the news kind of sinks in. Um, Susan kind of gives him an ultimatum saying like, hey, 
you know, I, I, I know that we've only just met, but like, you need to know this. If you, if you love me, then love me is the way that she phrases it saying like, Hey, this is the decision point. And Roland being tied up in the way that he is, um, and it turns her down, you know, a, because of her promise, but also B, uh, knowing that, you know, he will not take her if, um, she ends up going through this. She does not want to share her with anybody. And so this is, um, another, I, I would call it heartbreaking, but it, it changes literally the next chapter. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, I think it's interesting though, because they're both, they're both honorable people and they're both hung up on their honor and, uh, this is Susan saying, like, if I'll let you, like, I'll let you, uh, I'll break my promise for you if 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 you if you come to me to do it. Mm-hmm. And this is Roland saying, like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm 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 too honorable. There's too much going on or whatever. And when Susan rides off from this, she, she she's real mad because, <clears throat> as you might imagine, this is basically just pushing this all back on her and saying, like, no no no, you 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 dishonor yourself mm-hmm. and you know crawl on your knees to me. Yeah, and that, uh-huh. but I'm not going to meet you halfway in this. We're not. I'm not going to dirty myself doing this, and that's kind of a shitty thing for for Roland to do. But like you said, literally in the next chapter, this gets reversed, <laughs> and it's you know it's, they're back into the teenage love fest again. So yeah, you know, and every everything is moving so quickly because they are so young. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. It uh, it I, I don't I don't know that I have anything more to say about this. It's just interesting interesting to see it lay laid out like this where everybody's you know kind of prejudices and complications fall together in such a way that nothing actually hits the ground like there's no actual change they're just propping each other up at this stalemate you know and susan even as like you know the voice of her father came to her and said you mind your business and Kyle will mind it's like essentially getting um I was about to say, um, uh, oh gosh, advice from beyond the grave to just go for it. But no, it was just her, her imagination. It was her head. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And Roland hasn't quite come around to it. Yeah. Complicated, busy, busy, busy. Moving on here to bird and bear and hare and fish. The name of this chapter, uh, where things, uh, get real. I mean, one of the times it gets real in this book, things get real a lot. Mm. Um, Susan is kind of forced into her big decision moment by this really gross encounter with the mayor. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, This is, this is not a good situation. Especially with the Larry David imagery that you, that you popped in last episode. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I listened to it. Um, I, I, I finished up reading and then I noticed that that had popped up in the feed. It's like, Oh, okay. I can listen to this. And that is, um, that's a real bad one to pop in there after the fact. <laughs> oh, <laughs> somebody went there in after effects and just started like a motion track on that. Yep. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Head, head replacing. Jeremy, there's enough. Oh, mm-hmm. good. Sorry. Uh, the, 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 there's enough entourage to swap in and out. That's fine. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Jeremy, it sounded like you're going to say something. No, 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 not at all. I, yeah. I just, this is super gross. And, um, I, wish chase hadn't reminded me about the larry david image because that's now what i have in my head i had forgot about it so see here's the thing I, <laughs> to me. Um, I, I, I said i know <laughs> i said i was sorry it was an it follows situation okay <laughs> I, gave it to you. I didn't have it anymore <laughs> oh no and we've spread it we spread it to a couple thousand people no um so um 
we should we should describe what happens like susan basically gets catfished into a really vulnerable situation like she's called to the mayor's manor uh for some weird little chore about her dresses like she is the she is the reap girl you know essentially the the queen of the halloween parade she has all these costume changes and like oh you need to come for another fitting because one of the dresses was was uh destroyed in an incident that involved dog farts um (laughs) Uh, that was a. I, I forgot about the dog farts as a little detail. I did too. Of this. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a weird like this little. Uh, I don't know what you would call her. She's not like a serving girl, but this 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 assistant that works at the the mayor's house or whatever is such a weird has a weird personality. Yeah. Call Susan mom or mom. <laughs> What's that, Chase? I think it's her maid. They they call her out specifically as being. Oh okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Susan's maid. Yeah, it's like her, uh, her like her attendant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know she's, she, you know she's kind of like waiting there for the, you know as the, as the maid goes away, she starts having this like fantasy. She goes into her head like, oh, you know, doing you know handsy stuff with Roland, and then she realizes that behind her, and this should probably, you know, get a get a warning. I'm sorry about doing all the warnings, uh, but it seems prudent anyway. Um, you know gross non-consensual thing happening here it turns out that it actually is happening the mayor is behind her feeling her up from behind and also he is latched on and he dry humps her until he climaxes um yeah so susan rightfully feels very violated by this and filthy is the word that she Mm. uses and um Man, like this is this is bad enough as it is, but like Stephen King, like writing dialogue for this dude of like get out, ye poison, and is just like <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just so not great. It's just so bad. Uh, and if you if you put yourself in this situation where there's this old like pervy sixty year old dude who's probably used to getting what he wants, and this like sixteen year old girl who has never done anything in her entire life except you know draw a little blood with Roland. Like it's got to be just the most awful first experience, first sexual experience of her life, right? right. Like maybe not, mm-hmm. or one of. I know, like the other sexual experience with Rio, which is probably even worse. So, like this chick has not had a good introduction to human physiology one one one. Is all I'm saying. It's not. It's not been a good couple of months for this chick, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 real rough. And she she realizes like on the back of this that okay, he is not. <laughs> he's found a way around the contract. Like he's figured it out a way to use me for his for his own needs without actually you know breaking what Rhea has laid down and so he's just gonna keep doing this no matter what if she's ever alone at the manor then uh then there's gonna be a real problem so that's what drives her to her uh to her ultimate decision here that and Mm -hmm. You know, Aunt Cord, who really minimizes this, saying like, "Hey, what's done is done. You know, doesn't matter." Blah blah blah. Completely disregarding her and almost kind of like not believing her. And I like that uh, Cordelia scares Susan a little bit. I mean, I don't like it. I just it's it's interesting writing, I guess I should say. Um, mm-hmm. But she expects Cordelia to to explode with rage um, when when Susan kind of you know snaps at her a little bit after Cordelia is minimizing her and she doesn't Cordelia just kind of looks at her with this blank expression similar to the blank expression that was in Mayor Thorin's eyes when he after he finished yeah um 
and just says like what's done is done and that's mm-hmm. that's all there is to it and that that almost breaks her heart like even more than all of the yelling and screaming that, that they've they've gone through with one another has yeah <sighs> and so she decides to give way to Ka. like she you know rides away she does you know she doesn't even take time to put to put the saddle onto her horse you know rides and happens to pass by you know Roland who was in his thinking spot um he comes up on her and like hey you know like like something seems wrong how you doing <laughs> hey, hey you seem real vulnerable right now um, yeah i guess that would be how you doing right how you doing? <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the parlance of the time yeah in the parlance <laughs> um and you know he's made up his mind too he walks up and says hey you know make your offer again you know he doesn't have to say what it is but like yes if you if you offer again i'll say yes she says so if you if you love me then love me and they they do it They, they 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 have sex um and so they were joined and so they were doomed is the way the book puts it yeah. And this is at least this is at least written in a very sweet fashion, right? Like there's lots of uh loving touches and there's lots of like face to face contact and it's it's all nice and consensual. Like this this finally feels like a like a okay sexual experience. Um I can even like overlook the fact that these are like fifteen and sixteen year olds because like, hey, they're teenagers. Like this, this is they're basically adults. So Right, right. Or you know, in this in, in this time, blah blah blah. It's it's et cetera and down the line. Um, it's not transactional, you know, they have, they have waited, they have, you know, tested their resolve against this. It's not one person taking advantage of the other or not, um, you know, one person being at the whim of this system or this deal or these customs, you know, it is the two of them approaching it equally, wanting it equally. Rhea sees this, uh, I guess it's not all good. (laughs) Yeah. And she is completely uninterested in the them having sex aspect of this, you know, cause how oh, they've, you know, they've, <laughs> she's seen this any number of times, um, you know, and it even, in- including I just, uh, just with uh, like almost dead people is what she implies or not quite living people. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what yeah. the yeah. fuck are you into Rhea? <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in watching these teenagers having sex. Like they were the first ones to discover it. I've seen them sometimes in threes and fours, most of them not alive. And it's like, Rhea, c- come on. <laughs> Stop being edgy. Rhea. Rhea. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's no good. <laughs> so um death going up on her uh on her crystal ball <laughs> yep. um so she's not so much interested in that part but she's interested in the aftermath if you remember toward the beginning of last episode before susan left ria's hut um ria put her under a spell and said like hey you know on the night when you lose your virginity etc like okay and now we're gonna see what this is because you know they go to sleep um you know to to to, to sleep it off and roland notices that she's gone away that susan's gone away and tracks her down to a river she's gone there and gotten a sharp rock and it looks like she's about to cut her throat uh but instead she starts like cutting her hair off Rhea has you know for <laughs> for the uh uh for for the crime that susan committed of I think disrespecting her cat 
and said like, oh, you know, on the night of your consummation, guess what? You're going to cut off your hair and everybody will know. Um, and this is all the sweeter because it's going to expose what has happened, that she has broken her promise to the mayor as well. And Roland arm wrestles. What a, what a devious bitch Rhea is. Yeah. <laughs> Just, she's so fucking devious. Yep. Um, I love the way Roland puts this together, too, because he's like, okay, it would have to be her because... Like that is that is such a kind of violence that only another woman would understand toward another. Like, oh, a guy would not ever think of like <laughs> of program of programming that in. You know, they wouldn't give any mind to how devastating that would actually be. Yeah, Rhea's just terrible as like the arch villain of this particular story. Yeah, the the recent Inhumans series on that Marvel is doing. Like in the very first episode, the chick with the hair, Medusa, gets all of her hair cut off kind of against her will. So, yeah, yeah. dudes have mm. apparently figured that out since then. Yeah, since the yeah. long ago, since this one. Mm-hmm. Rhea's about to see it, but Musty breaks her concentration and she figures, oh, um, I guess I'm just going to, um, I'll see the aftermath later. It's fine. Roland stops her. Like he arm wrestles her to get the to get the rock away and break the trance. He tries to uh, hypnotize her to figure out exactly what happened. Um, But hypnosis can't reveal hypnosis beyond a certain point. Everything is just this wall of pink. And we know what that is, but they do not. Right. Yeah, but Roland doesn't really have any any clue. And he can't, he's like, you know, he's heard of, because she keeps calling it like a pink moon. And he's like, I've heard of blue moons. Mm -hmm. Never pink moons, though. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never listened to that particular Nick Drake album. Sick Nick Drake references <laughs> happening here. <laughs> That's uh that was off that that was off that was more Pluckety Doo on it, right? That was the big single off that album. Yeah, Pluckety Doo. <laughs> I'm I'm real sad. Nobody likes my music until it's put into a commercial. It's 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 a, that, all that last part's in parentheses. <laughs> uh, um. So yeah, they decide to go all in, like. You know, their previous plan won't work anymore. Uh, Susan starts getting real kind of like co- commitment-y a little bit, saying like, hey, I can't go to Thorin now. I can't, I, you know, I can't go to the mayor. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't bear it. Like, we are, we're in this together. And she even goes so far as to say like, you know, have you given thought to like, I, you know, I might be carrying your child. Who knows this? And... Roland basically says, "Like, yeah, that that doesn't matter. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll 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 work this out." There's a little bit of a tragedy to that. A, we know it doesn't end very well, but the King reminds us very subtly because I think at some point he says, "Oh, and he Roland draped her with a with, with a shirt made in a kingdom she would never see, or something like that." Mm-hmm. Again, just kind of like subtly twisting the knife or intimating that they would twist the knife. <sighs> So they set up new plans saying like, Hey, we can't use Shimi. People are going to figure that out. Uh, we can't just keep running into each other. People are going to figure that out. So let's just use this, use this rock for now. And Roland doesn't say this, but he knows it in his heart. They're like, yeah, like we're going to mess this up. Eventually we're just stupid kids. The longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get. So he's a little bit prescient in that regard. What do you guys think about Eldred going after Cordelia? Match made in heaven, right? <laughs> of course, yeah, one hundred percent. This is this is great. <laughs> it's, 
it's weird because like it's strange to see Eldred Jonas, you know, the, the, the head honcho of the big coffin hunters, you know, sidling up and acting kind of human. Like it doesn't seem to tell me if I'm wrong, both of you, it doesn't seem like he has any real designs. He doesn't have an ulterior motive. He just thinks, man, this, this Cordelia, she seems to have a real, like a real uh, upstanding kind of vibe to her. Right. Well, earlier, um, I want to say in the, previous episode when he's like hanging out um yeah yeah this is when he's telling um his two lackeys to go hide the uh the oil and sit go he says yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be up at the at the mayor's house partying down with these these th- you know three lads or whatever and he even thinks to himself like you know i'm gonna get some gossip but i'm not gonna go to the guy that's you know the big barrel you know beer barrel gut dude that's drinking and buying everybody beers i'm gonna find like the prim and proper woman who <laughs> Like, you know, as flat as a pancake or something. He says something really derogatory like that. And then it's like, that, that that's the chick that I can, that I'm going to get some actual information out of. Mm, okay. I forgot about that. Okay. Now that, there we go. Mm. Hello, comfort zone. <laughs> just, it would be super weird if there was just this other side story, this earnest love tale between these two awful people. <laughs> the, uh, I apologize because this is the second time I've done this, but. Um, I don't I don't know what I was thinking. I had this written down and I forgot to bring it up on the last episode. Um, there's an, it, there's a uh, moment between uh, I think it's De Pepe and um, Jonas where De Pepe is like, I don't want to get him drunk because if you get him drunk, like he'll give you some weird Manny speech about how he's trapped to other worlds through these magical doors. I don't want to hear that shit anymore. And I'm like, wait, excuse me? Jonas has been through multiple do- worlds? <laughs> where, Where is that covered, Mr. King? Where's that book? I would, I would read that book. Yeah, I want to I read the tales of young Jonas. Just like I want to read about uh, Stephen DeShane and his, his, old, his old crew. Uh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, on, uh, a, on a long enough time frame, Stephen King will write it. He's also like 70. I don't like to think about that. No, neither do I. <laughs> oh, um, but because Eldred came a courting, you know, Cordelia's blood is up and she's in the, you know, she, she's in the mind for love. And she just kind of gets this like detective vision for details about Susan. Like she immediately hones in on like, oh, why is your hair wet? Your braid looks sloppy. Uh, you, <laughs> like just immediately like calling all this out, just dressing her down. Um, and Susan's pretty much just evasive about this. And that's where the chapter is end. You know, the, the chapter ends. Um, we get a small interlude, uh, where Eddie asks a pretty good question. And I actually wondered about this when I first read the book and we're back in Kansas mm-hmm. and Eddie's like, Hey, Roland, why are you remembering scenes that you weren't there for? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like that, was... that, that's the thing that's literally played for a joke in a recent episode of Rick and Morty. Right. <laughs> I it's so frustrating too because Roland brushes this question off. He's like, that's not really the question you want to you want to ask. And I'm like and I'm like me looking at the book. Yeah, it is. Absolutely it is. I would <laughs> like to know I've that been wondering please. for the past two hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> so Roland doesn't answer it. Um there is an answer to this question that actually like satisfies, but you know, Roland hasn't actually described what's happening with that with that orb of theirs. Um, the question that Roland kind of deflects to is like, hey, doesn't it seem like this night's going on forever? You know, time is different, yes. But also the act of telling tales, you know, in this mode, in this realm, 
causes things to get even weirder, right? You know, it kind of calls to my mind a little bit the uh, um, the the palaver between Roland and Martin, or Roland and Walter, rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. that leads right into the next chapter. So this one went quicker than I expected it to. Um, man, I love this story so much. Like it is, it is a very good love love story. I love the conspiracy aspect of this, the insular town that has something wrong with it. You know, kind of side to it. Like it just, it's such a good western, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chase. How about how about you? Any any final thoughts on this uh, on this portion of the uh, of the book? This is definitely where it feels like the story is kind of getting on its rails. Um, the previous, you know, the first portion of Susan uh, was definitely a lot of world building, a lot of setting up characters. And there was, a, you know, probably a little bit more to talk about because there was a bit more uh, to dive into uh, this from, you know, from Shimi on. It is like it is plot, 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 plot. And it is, you know, you are kind of on this roller coaster until you hit back Kansas again. Mm hmm. Yeah, Jeremy. I, I agree with Chase. Like this, this, this is the point of the book where it gets extremely exciting. Um, I talked in the last episode of the podcast about being somewhat disappointed by the fact that this was going to be ninety percent like a prequel, uh, more or less, because I was so into the story that was happening um, after the you know fifty thousand year long cliffhanger that they left us off with uh, the <laughs> wastelands. So, uh, but this is the point where it started coming together, and I started forgetting uh, about the current story and i just kind of got totally absorbed into this story and just wanting to know what's happening next what is this mystery um how is like what's going to happen to susan right because we know it's going to be something tragic or else it wouldn't fuck rolling up so bad like Mm -hmm. you still wouldn't be talking about this chick unless it was something extremely tragic and uh it's like trying to like kind of figure that out and try to see what's happening is was really really interesting to me yeah and um oh good Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I, you know, kind of building off of that point, one of the nice things about listening to the podcast as I'm going through is I, you know, before I even started, I picked up this book, I knew it's like, okay, this is, this is mostly flashback. And I was able to kind of prep myself for that before <laughs> uh, I dove in. And that was incredibly helpful because I'm sure I would have been the, the exact same way if I just picked this up as, you know, part of the normal course of reading a series. I would have opened it up and got 100 pages in and been like, okay, when are we going to be getting back to this giant glass tower? (laughs) Apparently never. Okay, cool. That's fine. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Man, so I I can't remember the name of this book, but like when I was in high school, I remember reading a bunch of like the Forgotten Realms, like Drizzt books, Mm -hmm. you know, like with Wolfgar and, and, and all those folks. And, you know, those are done in these, you know, it's like, oh, like three or four set books. Or uh, like 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 series. So here's a you know a trilogy here, a, qu- a quadrilogy there. Mm-hmm. There was one where like ninety percent of it was just this weird little love story between these two like villagers and almost a noble and stuff like that. And I was like, what the what the fuck is going on? Why am I reading this? I want to. I'm, I'm a stupid high schooler. I want to read about sword fights and stuff. And then like at the very last second, it's like, oh, and then Wolfgar walked in from the wilderness and saved everybody. <laughs> what do you what? what is that? that's a that's a bad way to that's a bad way to do this i missed that one and i like i read a lot of those too mm-hmm. apparently i missed that one fortunately yeah i, I think it was like the like part of the sword coast series or whatever it was okay yeah. it was the cleric quintet 
maybe no no that would that would have been a different one this one okay this okay. one specifically what w- like w- was about that that group of characters Drizzt and okay. and stuff like that yeah gotcha gotcha um yeah so i only bring that up to say this is a very well done kind of departure we are seeing the foundations of a character that we're familiar with and i'm making a point that i made last time so dot 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 Stephen King does a very good job of laying out the scaffolding. I think at one point, like, you know, after he and Susan sleep together for the first time, it says, you know, Roland slept well that night. And that would actually be the last time that he ever slept well again, (laughs) you know, and because it is being told from this third person omniscient narrator, it's not, you know, Roland um, being hyperbolic about it. It's not the teen drama. You know, it's like saying, like, we are on the cusp of not just the events that are going to take this story into a new direction and make it go much faster. Uh, like, you know, this is kind of the uh, the axis around which Roland's story, uh, you know, moves, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Very good. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for, for, for for joining me, you guys. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening. Um, next time we're going to cover, okay, so we're breaking up, uh, the come reap chapter, um, or a section of the book into multiple pieces, just like we did this one. It's going to be three pieces. I forget where it ends, but uh, you know, it gets a little bit more action heavy and there's a lot of stuff to cover there. Uh, Chase, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at CQ loudly. Or uh, you could tune into my D&D actual play podcast, Another Path. Um, I'm the DM, and I run players through a homebrew world using D&D 5th edition. Nice. That, that is called Another Path? Correct. Cool. Um, is that found on places where uh, uh, quality yep, podcasts it, are found? Absolutely. All of those uh, all those fantastic places, as well as anotherpathpodcast.com. Cool. Uh, Jeremy, you can chat with me on Twitter at JG Greer. Um, In my spare time, I do a Dark Souls podcast called Don't Give Up Skeleton. I consider it the third best podcast, Dark Souls podcast in the universe. So um, if you're into number three, come come find me. (laughs) Second best Um, is still running. um, Well, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you know when when this episode's coming out, Cole? Uh, This episode, Jeremy, is coming out. Let me see. Let me see. Um, Put you on the spot. Early release on November the 21st and uh, for everybody on the 28th. So if you're listening to this on the early feed, uh, tomorrow will be the 100th episode of Don't Give Up Skeleton. Holy cow. And, oh, uh, nice. Yeah. I know. I got there way quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have a special guest lined up. I don't want to say who it is because we haven't actually recorded yet. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're into Dark Souls stuff, you, you definitely will know who he is. Um, but that'll be out tomorrow. Um, and if you're listening to this on the public feed, you can go find it at don'tgiveupskeleton.com and find all the episodes, including Cole and in the future Chase, who is very, very high on my list to get to. I just haven't got to him yet. So excellent. He'll, he'll be there soon. Cool. Mm-hmm. It comes recommended. Um, yeah. And you can find me at Cole Ross, K O L E R O S S on Twitter and on the other shows on duckfeed.tv. Um, you know, all the usual stuff you can do to help the show and then at work, patreon.com slash duckfeedtv and ratings or reviews. It's been a little bit since we've gotten one of those. Um, so I'd like to see more. Uh, if you have the time or the inclination, it really does help us out. Otherwise, iTunes has made that whole process so fucking impossible. I hate it. <sighs> yeah, it's ridiculous. I wish it was not so hard. I wish they didn't have the corner on that. 
I, I wish literally anybody else did aggregated podcast reviews. Mm-hmm. But no, no. Occasionally I get like I do a vanity search and I find one on Google, but like nobody does that there. Right. Yeah. I didn't even know you could do it on Google and I have mm. an Android. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, the, the, the Play Store has has some weird stuff. It's it's a lot gotcha. of a lot of a lot of unhappy people on that one. Um, mm-hmm. I find not not in general. Like I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying unhappy people people go for Android. I'm just saying like those reviews. Oh, screw it. I, I don't know. I dug myself a hole. Anyway, thank you everybody. Even if you're on Android, I'm sure you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, phones don't matter. It does, it, it's all fine. Anyway, take care. And until next time, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. Thank you. <laughs>